Well, good morning, everyone. It's a lovely morning, isn't it? Did you enjoy the view out of your bedroom window? Isn't it therapeutic? Ah. I sent a WhatsApp to my wife rather early this morning with the picture out of my window, and uh, I hope I provoked her to a lot of jealousy. I think I did. No, appreciation is the word I was looking for. Sorry. Um, just fantastic. So it's great to be here this weekend. And it's a great privilege to be with you and to be looking at this wonderful, magnificent book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible there or on your uh, device, if you could turn to... uh, It's quicker with a Bible, by the way, but we'll wait for those with devices to eventually get there. Um, I still have a paper diary. We've just just appointed a new kind of uh, ministry support guy who's, who's vowed that he's going to get me onto an electronic diary within the next few months, so we have a battle ahead, but uh, <laughs> I always love beating people with uh, phones, you know, let's, what about a date in December? <laughs> oh, it's all right, I'll, I'll wait, it's okay. Uh, um, imagine that you were born with um, a terrible condition, which guaranteed you would die young and horribly. Then a wonderful but incredibly expensive cure was discovered, but only a limited number of people were offered the cure, and you are one of them. You are completely healed. How would you feel? Paul has just prayed that the church in Ephesus would come to know God better. We're now in Ephesians 2, by the way. Paul has just prayed that the church in Ephesus would come to know God better, and especially, chapter 1, verse 19, to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power that is bringing them from present hope to future glory. It's the kind of power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him supreme authority in the universe. It is heady stuff. But it's as if Paul stops and thinks, do you really know what I'm talking about? Have you really grasped the power of grace in your lives? Do you recognize yourself in this picture? Well, he writes in chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the desires of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace 
you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder earlier that you teach sinners and the humble your way. We come before you as forgiven sinners and ask that you would help us to humble ourselves afresh before you this morning. That you might give us more of your grace and in particular Help us to understand more of your grace and how great it is. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So you were born with this terrible condition. But you have received this amazing, expensive cure. It's not merely, as we read this, an individual experience. It's something corporate as well. All these instructions, all these statements are are plural. So this is something corporate in the church, local and universal as well. And it's to do with spiritual power. The members of the church in Ephesus knew about spiritual power because Ephesus was a famous center of occult power. The Ephesian scroll was a well-known thing that you could buy if you visited Ephesus. And just as tourists go there today, tourists went there in the day of the Apostle Paul. Not least to see the famous, magnificent temple to Artemis. If you flick over to Acts 19, it gives us a reminder of the kind of world in which the Christians in Ephesus lived. So Acts 19, verse 11. Paul has been there in the city uh, for a couple of years, uh, lecturing in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Again, if you uh, ever get the chance to go to Western Turkey and see some of the sites on the Acropolis in Pergamon, um, there is an example of a lecture hall that's been preserved from this period. It's absolutely stunning. It's it's just like if you went to college, uh, just tiered seats. In marble, though, I don't suppose you had marble ones where you went. Um, And Paul hired this, and every day for two years he lectured and and taught the gospel and explained the way. And then we read in verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, extraordinary, isn't it? Handkerchiefs, imagine. 
No, don't think of my handkerchief. Think of his. Um, Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured. And the, not just their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. There's a spiritual dimension here. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they're basically exorcists, they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They realized there was power in this name. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. Seven of them, remember. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls, these famous scrolls, and burned them together publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Well, that doesn't mean much to us, does it? How much is a drachma worth? Well, a drachma was worth a day's wage. What's a day's wage in Ireland? How much would you be prepared to work for a day, huh? How much would you charge? Anyone prepared to tell us what they're willing to work for a day? No. <laughs> Would you work for 100 quid for a day? Yeah, maybe. Okay, someone do the maths. Philip. <laughs> someone help us. What's, um, it's 2 million, isn't it? Is that right? No, f- 5 million. 5 million. Sorry, I can't do the maths. Clearly, need some help here. Thank you, Alan. Is that 5 million quid? That's the value of the stuff that the people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus brought that they hadn't got rid of and they now realized they needed to get rid of and they had a huge bonfire and they burnt it all because it was stuff that was to do with spirit powers. And they knew that if they were going to follow Jesus, they had to get rid of that stuff. Because his was the name that was above all names. They knew about spiritual power as people living in Ephesus in a way that I think many of us probably saying spiritual forces of evil aren't at work in our culture and society, but they're much more hidden, uh, I would suggest, in our day and age, in this particular part of the world. But that battle between evil and good was very clear in Ephesus at that time, as we've just seen. And back to Ephesians, Paul writing a number of years later to this church, And what he's praying at the end of chapter 1 is that his readers will see and grasp more clearly the power and supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just as as a piece of information, he wants them to connect it with the life of the church. 
So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 22, um, he says, And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed the Lord Jesus to be head over everything for the church. There's the connection. It's not just that he's the one who's head over everything in the universe, but it's all for the benefit of the church, his people, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's going to use his power for the church. I mean, we're used to this in Ireland, aren't we? When, you know, when your local man gets elected from your party and becomes a minister in the government, well, you expect cashback, don't you, at this point? Certainly south of the border. I think it happens here as well, up north of the border. You know, suddenly you think, ah, so our man's become a minister. So that government department, which is going to be decentralized and sent down the country, guess where it's going to come? It's going, amazingly, they found that the best place to put it is right in the middle of the constituency of the minister. What a surprise. Um, Well, how much more then does, if I can put it reverently, our man... The Lord Jesus Christ himself. He benefits his people. Because he's going to use all the power that he has. Which is the supreme power in the universe. He remember has been appointed head over everything. For the church. And the church is the the body which the, the Lord Jesus directs. Which the Lord Jesus fills as verse 23 of chapter 1 puts it. The Lord Jesus who, who fills the church with his majestic presence and authority. He's the, the, the Lord who is the Lord of all. Who fills all in all as verse 23 puts it. And in particular he fills the church. His body. But when you look around people like us. Don't you think this is the most extraordinary thing that that people like us are part of a body which has been filled with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who fills everything in the universe, that we are connected with him and benefit from his power and authority in this way, superior to every other power and authority that exists in the universe of whatever kind. Now, the fact that we are taken from where we were to where we are on the way to where we're going is nothing short of a miracle of grace. This is a spiritual power at work, the like of which, well, had never previously been counted in Ephesus or anywhere. And that is the power that is at work in us who believe. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of of three things in these verses which help us to grasp the power of grace that is at work within us. If you want to know what the title is, you may have already got it, but the title that I've given to this morning, this first morning address, is it's a question. Have we grasped the power of grace in our lives? That's the question I want us to be thinking about. Have we grasped the power of grace in our lives. Well, to help us grasp that power, Paul reminds us of three things. Number one, the awful situation we were in 
the awful situation we were in, verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, literally the flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of mankind, that is, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, the Apostle Paul is not describing some terrible period of history or particularly horrible tribe or clan. I'm trying to remember, what is, what was the, is it the O'Briens who were supposed to be the worst clan in Ireland? Or is, have I got that wrong? Were they the most brutal? Who knows your Irish history? Blank faces. Well, let's suppose it was the O'Briens. Um, have I got that wrong? Where did I get that from? Somewhere in the back of the head. Someone quietly Google it while we... Uh, um, but I think there was one particular clan... Uh, who were just utterly brutal. I expect there were about five of them, but anyway. Um, we're not talking about that kind of thing, some clan that's just famous for its uh, horribleness. Now, Paul is describing every society in every age, what we all are by nature. Marked by three awful things. We, we were, were dead, yet walking. This is scary. This is horror movie stuff. No, dead Yet walking. Not the title of a horror movie, but the description of the non-Christian, of the pre-Christian life if we're Christians. Sometimes uh, entering territory that we know is forbidden, that's the idea behind transgressions or trespasses, sins of commission. Sometimes missing the mark. The word translated sins at the end of verse 1 is, is the archery word. And if you've ever tried to do archery, I remember the first time I tried to do it. You know, you kind of, it's like sort of windsurfing, isn't it? You look at it and you think, easy. No problem at all. And then you kind of you find you can hardly pull the string back on the bow. You know, you're wobbling all over the place because it's just, oh, oh, oh missed. Um, hitting the target is hard enough, let alone a bullseye. Well, that's the, the word at the end of verse 1. It's that missing the mark. Sins, if you like, of omission. We just don't hit the target. Dead, yet walking. Awful. Second thing that's so awful is that we were enslaved to, to the terrible trio, that awful triumvirate, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were slaves to the world's path, walking it. Verse 2. You used to walk, literally, the way of the world. That was the path you followed. Its pattern of living. Sometimes in outright rebellion and idolatry. Sometimes in the devotion of false religion. Sometimes in sheer apathy. Always in proud self-confidence. That is the way of the world. And that's how we were. Following the path of the world. Following the path of the devil as well. That's who is referred to in the second half of verse 2. Following the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's the spiritual realm. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's our old enemy, the devil. Fostering disobedience to God's commands right from the beginning of time. 
Did God say? Really? Oh, you mustn't take that seriously. No, you do what you want to do. You must be free. You must fulfill your potential. The devil's path. The world's path, the devil's path, and the, the world, the devil and the flesh. Verse 3, the path of our own desires. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, our sinful nature, and following, here's the path we followed, following our sinful nature's desires and thoughts. Where does sin come from? Not out there, in here. Desires not just of lust and greed in all their manifestations, but gossip and slander, a sharp tongue, anger, Pride, ambition, bitterness, divisiveness, impatience, ingratitude, unkindness, grumpiness, etc. Human beings are all born enslaved to these powers, the power of the world and the flesh and the devil. They are dead yet walking, they are enslaved. And the third awful thing that we discover about our past is that we were, verse 3, damned. End of the verse. Like the rest, to the rest of mankind, we were by nature objects of wrath. By nature, meaning we were born that way. But of course, we live in a world that, that largely refuses to believe this, if it's ever heard this verdict. If you go to your colleagues on Monday or your friends this week and say, did you know that, that you know, until you become a Christian, you are a, an object of God's wrath? just thought I'd share that with you. Um, they'll probably be mortally offended at first that you're accusing them of being bad, etc., and you're judging them and all the rest of it. Uh, but probably fundamentally, they won't believe it. They will say, no, that, that cannot be true. So the popular understanding, I mean, we, we observed it. I, I don't know if you followed the, the very tragic death of that Australian cricketer. Was it Paul Hughes? Was that his name? Sorry, Philip Hughes, thank you. Um, very sad. But if you listen to the kind of stuff that was said at his funeral, um, you know, he was felled at 63 not out, was it? And... Uh, you know, he's going to be 63, not out forever. And he's, he's uh, I think the Australian captain in his tribute at the funeral said that he is, he's just batting on happily in another world. And you kind of think, do you really believe that? Actually, what you believe? Um, no understanding of the biblical worldview that humans are, are destined to die once and then not to bat on in another world, but to face judgment. We are... By nature, objects of God's wrath. We are damned. It's an awful situation. Now, someone may object, well, does it really apply to everyone? What about the you in verse 2? Who's the you that, uh, verse 1 rather, who's he talking to? As for you, you were, were dead. Well, probably more, uh, the, the kind of default setting in, in Ephesians is when he's talking about you, he's talking about Gentiles. When he's talking about we, he's talking about Jews. So probably he's talking about the non-Jewish readers in the church in Ephesus. But by the time we get to verse 3, it's all of us. It's the we. He's included, if you like, if he was just talking about the Gentiles having a particularly 
sort of bad upbringing or bad way of life, by the time we get to three, there's no doubt that everybody, Jew and Gentile, are involved. There are no exceptions. Like the rest of mankind, verse 3, all of us, by nature, are objects of wrath. Well, someone may object again, but is God really a God of wrath? Isn't that at best a kind of an Old Testament kind of God that we've grown out of in the New Testament? Isn't it an appalling idea, totally unworthy of a loving God to speak in these terms? Well, the question usually betrays a a transfer of our usual kind of anger onto God. I mean, our usual kind of anger is is so often out of control, or if it's in control, it's selfish. But this kind of anger is, is a settled opposition to everything that is wrong in our world and our lives. It is not out of control. It is not selfish. I mean, we all feel, don't we, a sense of outrage when injustice occurs. We hear the kind of stuff that's going on in Iraq and Syria, um, Islamic State, ISIL, and all that. And there's a part of us which just doesn't want to hear it. It's just so awful. Um, I use the Barnabas Fund. I don't know if you know of Barnabas Fund, who, who support Christians in persecuted parts of the world. And, and I use their prayer diary. And, and sometimes I, I'm about to, say to my, about to tell my wife what I've just read and prayed for. And she says, John, I, I don't want to hear it. Because she knows I'm going to tell her something really awful uh, that I've just been shocked by. Um, it's not that she doesn't care. It's just it, it, is, it is so awful. And yet when we hear this kind of stuff, we... Something in us cries out for justice, don't we? Is someone going to stop them doing this? Please, would someone stop them? No, it makes us angry when we see that kind of wickedness. Who is capable of bringing justice, ultimate justice? Well, only God. And if we remove God's judgment and, and disallow him, as it were, as if we had the power from being a God of wrath, then we actually do away with any hope of ultimate justice in our world. And the standard that's being applied is, of course, God's perfection. That's why none of us makes the grade. It's not a question of us meeting our own standards of right and wrong. I mean, who of us can stand up and say, well, I always do what I know is right, even if I don't do do what God says is right? No, none of us even meets our own standards. And I think one of the things that helped me most in in thinking through this area was when I I read a book many years ago called The Goodness of God, which which pointed out, and I'd never seen this before, that that if you look at the number of times uh, Jesus spoke, as recorded in the New Testament, about hell and judgment, he speaks about them more than anyone else in the Bible. That's quite a sobering statistic, isn't it? I know statistics can be twisted and made to prove many things. But I think that is significant. That the Lord Jesus was the one who constantly reminded people about the fires of hell and the awfulness of judgment and the absolute necessity of escaping God's judgment. Now, better to cut off your hand and escape it than to go into hell, as it were, with your hand intact. That's the kind of language he used to try and make the point that there is justice coming and it's something which we really should do everything to avoid. 
But even if we've been Christians for years, we, we find this hard to accept when we stop and think about it, that the ordinary man and woman on the, the Clapham omnibus or whatever the equivalent is in Ireland, I haven't worked that one. What is that one? What's the equivalent in Ireland? Come on, you're a lawyer. David, what's it? <laughs> deferring to the House of Lords. David, can't say that in Ireland, can you? <laughs> a Supreme Court now, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, well, whatever the equivalent is, can anyone give us a... Who is the man on the Clapham omnibus in Ireland? Clapham being a suburb of London, in case you're wondering. Um, anyone going to help us? No, never mind. We don't need to detain ourselves on that. But the, the man on the bus, let's just have a bus. Should we just have a bus? You know what a bus is? Yeah, okay. Uh, forget Clapham. Who said Clapham anyway? Who's trying to distract us? Um, we find it so hard to accept. Let's get back on track. We find it so hard to accept that the ordinary man and woman on the bus is truly heading to such an awful destiny that as you sit opposite them, trying to avoid their eyes, but out of the corner of your eye, sussing them up, trying to work out, you know, wonder what they do, wonder where they're from, do they speak English, or whatever it may be. Our helpful neighbours, our sophisticated colleagues, our fun friends are heading to this awful, awful destiny. We may even find it hard to believe if we're Christians, and this is Paul's big point, that, that that's where we were once heading. Just as people boarding the Titanic 100 years ago had no idea that as they sailed they were heading to disaster. So it is that the vast majority of people in our world have no idea that they are heading for the horrors of hell. And we Christians so easily forget that we were on that doomed ship until we were rescued by the lifeboat of our Lord Jesus. What an awful situation we were in. But that's exactly where every single Christian was heading. But for, secondly, that's the awful situation, but secondly, the awesome salvation that God has accomplished, verses 4 to 7, the awesome salvation that God has accomplished. Verse 4 is one of those famous, but God... Verses. And notice the, this salvation, notice the, the motive, the method, and the purpose of this awesome salvation. It's motive, verse 4. Why did God bother to save us? Why didn't he simply let us sink and go down? After all, we deserve it. He knows that better than we do. Answer, verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Rich mercy, great love. He did not wait for us to reform ourselves or reach out to him. No, he reached out and down to us because we deserved it. No, mercy is what you show to the undeserving. Because we are lovable? No, God knows that our best efforts at purity are like blood-stained bandages in his sight. It was sheer mercy. And stunning love. That's the motive, the method of this awesome salvation. Verse 5. Perfectly matched our plight. What was our plight? Um, we were, you can remember it easily with the, the acronym DED for dead. We were dead, enslaved, and damned. 
by nature. Dead, enslaved and damned. Dead. So what did God do? Verse 5. God made us alive. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were enslaved. So what did God do? Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. We were down there, under the heel, trapped. And God lifted us up and set us free and redeemed us from our slavery. Dead, no longer dead, made alive. Enslaved, no longer enslaved, redeemed and raised up. Damned, no longer damned. But rather than being banished from God's presence, what does God do, verse 5, verse 6 rather? He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Not only are we ushered into the presence of God, as it were, in the heavenly realms, but we, we discover that we're, we're being invited to a meal. We're, we're being invited to table fellowship with God. And as we come to the table and we wonder, where, where should we sit? Is there a place for me? There is. There it is with my name, like at a wedding. Searching out. There, there's the table. There's my name. This is my place. We've been seated now, for us, for whom maybe your family's different, but I think the culture I've been brought up in in terms of meals and things is they're very functional. And basically, it's just a, an opportunity to stuff food into your face, isn't it? I mean, that's like breakfast this morning a bit. You know, it's, um... But in many cultures, and maybe you're a more refined and sophisticated individual or family than I am or, or we are, but um, that's one of the things I love about French culture, actually, is that they take their time about their eating. It's, it's a very, you know, you have two hours for lunch in, in French culture, don't you, I think? Their lunch break in the sort of business world is two hours rather than one hour. I, I like that. Uh, but they expect you to relax over a meal, to converse. Uh, it's, a, it's a fellowshipping kind of cultural experience. Now, maybe... Uh, Maybe in Ireland that's, it's, you're better at that than the English. But anyway, be that as it may, the point is that in God's mind, and certainly in the, in the Eastern mind, hospitality and being around the table is a big thing. I remember experiencing this as a student when I was visiting Nazareth and um, was wandering about near the, um, the mission hospital there. And somebody, just a friend and I, just called us into his home. And he, he was a... He was a worker at the hospital. Uh, we didn't know him from Adam, but he'd seen us around. We'd, I think, arrived the day before, and he invited us into his home and just gave us tea and coffee and, and, and sweet delicacies. And we were just bowled over by the hospitality that, that happens in the East. And here is God saying, come and join me at my table. I'm not going to treat you as an outcast that you deserve to be, banished from my presence, damned forever. The heart of hell is separation from God and all his good gifts. The opposite of hell is heaven. But what is heaven? It is to be seated with Christ around his table, so to speak. That is the glorious thing. And that is the key thing, isn't it? It's with Christ, together with Christ. We are seated with him. In the heavenly realms, verse 6, in Christ Jesus. It's, why are we sitting here? What are we doing there? Well, we know him. 
He knows us, the Lord Jesus. That's why we can sit down here. Isn't that extraordinary? And yet it's not extraordinary when you think that the Christ that we've put our trust in if we're Christians is the one who was raised by God's power from the dead and raised up into the heavenlies, as the end of chapter 1, verse 20 puts it. So this same Christ who is powerfully raised is the one who has powerfully raised us. That power is at work in our lives. That's the method, perfectly matching our plight. The motive, his great love and rich mercy, the method, not dead anymore, not enslaved, not damned, but raised to life, liberated from our slavery and welcomed at his heavenly table. And the purpose of it all, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There is this idea of a demonstration, a showing. If you go to a show, you might come to London. Why would you come for a show, for something to be shown or an exhibition? Um, I've got a brother-in-law who comes and stays with us occasionally. Why does he come? Because he's, he's got a stand at um, Earl's Court because he, he sells tea uh, into the, uh, the market for tourists, you know, like Windsor Castle and Heathrow Airport and all that kind of stuff, fancy tea. Um, and he wants to show his wares to prospective buyers. So he's come for a, an exhibition. And God is in the business of showing what he's done to the world. And we get to it in chapter 3, verse 10. And I, I wonder if, if you had to choose a verse which captures the heart of Ephesians. Um, and if you were a betting person, or if I were a betting person, I think I'd put a bit of money on chapter 3, verse 10. Um, God's intent was that now, through the church, the, the manifold, the richly colored Wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. All these great spiritual powers that exist. God, as it were, leans over the parapet of heaven and says, do you see that down there? Everybody, hey, everybody, come, come and have a look. Look, do you see that down there, that church? That, yeah, that one, there. That church is a model of the future of the universe when everything's going to be under my authority and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a demonstration of that power and of that headship and of that submission. That is my wisdom expressed, the wisdom of God's great love and rich mercy. And it was God's intent that through the church, the richly colored wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according, 3.11, to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what God's grace looks like, everybody, says God, as it were. And the world thinks it's mad, because people are dead. But God has said, no, I've made them alive. I mean, it's as mad as, as going to a, an open coffin at a wake and, and telling them to get up. Stop sleeping. Come on, up you get. I mean, if you did that at the next wake you go to, you'd be in serious trouble, at least in terms of people thinking about your sanity. 
That's what God has done. He's, he's, we were dead. It's not that we were sick or ignorant and needed a bit of help. We were dead. Dead people are dead. They are totally unresponsive. But God's grace takes no hopers like us, rescues them, restores them, reunites them, not only with their God, but as we shall see throughout later in Ephesians, increasingly with one another. And when God wants to show the world how extravagantly generous he is in his grace, he points to his church. As verse 10 of chapter 2 puts it, we are God's workmanship, his work of art. His masterpiece is almost the, the, the nuance there. One of the interesting characters in the church in Dublin where we served is a gentleman called Googie. Uh, it's not his real name. Uh, his claim to fame is that he is the friend of Bono who gave him the name Bono when they were teenagers. Would you believe? But anyway, that's, that's completely distracted you now, hasn't it? Uh, but Bono is an artist. And we used to live just down the road from where he lived and where his studio was. And I remember him showing me his studio. And, and he's got this particular distinctive bowl shape that he paints and he actually casts in. Huge, great. And now if you're an art collector, you need to have a googie in your collection, apparently. And, that, and you know, once that happens, you're made, I can tell you. Um, but you know, googie said to me, oh, I'll, I'll be over in London. I'll be exhibiting. Because if you're an artist, you exhibit that. You've got to make your works known to, to the world. God, God is the great artist who exhibits. His, he exhibits his workmanship to the world. His awesome salvation in the church from an awful situation. And all of this due, thirdly and finally, to God's amazing grace, which we have experienced in verses 8 to 10. So we were in an awful situation. We have, an ex- we have experienced an awesome salvation, all because of God's amazing grace. Now, verses 8 to 10 are a wonderful exposition of grace and works and how they connect. Because one of the classic objections to grace, isn't it, as a gift, is that it, it encourages slackness in people who really grasp that there's you know, they've got to stop trying and just trust. Really? You mean I can, there's nothing for me to do? No, absolutely nothing. You cannot con- contribute a single pence or cent to your salvation. But surely then, I mean, I can go and do what I like, can't I? So it might even encourage immorality. It's presumptuous, isn't it, to say, I'm sure I'm saved. Isn't it better to say, well, uh, uh, provided I do my bit, little bit maybe, I'll get in. God does his bit, I do mine. And the result is salvation. I mean, otherwise I could live as a monster and claim I was saved by grace and, and that would be scandalous, wouldn't it? Well, yes, it would. But that's not what Paul is saying. There, there is a, a biblical perpendicular that doesn't swing either away to license or to legalism. We are... Not saved by works, that's very clear, isn't it? Verses 8 and 9. Not by works, verse 9, are we saved, so that no one can boast. But we are, verse 10, created for good works. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. 
Good works contribute zero to our salvation, so none of us can boast. And yet good works are the mark of a saved person. Jesus went around doing good. Do you remember that description by by Peter? (coughs) Excuse me. In Acts 10.38, where you kind of think, oh, Peter, I think you could have done a bit better than that in describing the Lord Jesus, couldn't you? But interestingly, what he says is Jesus was someone who went around doing good. Grace is the root. Good deeds are the fruit. Grace is the cause. Good works, the consequence. We are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. God has prepared in advance or beforehand good works for us to do, that we should walk in them. Again, the, one of the themes that comes through this letter, and it's disguised a bit in the NIV. So 2.2 is when we used, in which we used to live, is literally in, in which we used to walk. Um, chapter 2, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus to walk in good works. Now, what are the good works? Have a, stop and think about that for a moment. What does that mean if you're a Christian? We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do or to walk in. What does that actually mean? How do I discover what they How do I know what they are? Well, there was a debate among the commentators as to whether this is a sort of general thing about the kind of life that a Christian should live or whether it's about specific things that God is asking you individually to do. Now, personally, I like to have my cake and eat it. And I can't see any reason why we can't say, well, it's probably a combination of the two. That there are certain things which, in terms of Christian character, are the good works that we are asked to walk in. God has made it clear in advance that we should live in a certain way as Christians. There should be patience as a mark of our lives. You know, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to get a little assessment from our colleagues, assuming we're in work. Um, Please assess your friend, your name, um, in terms of their patience, scale of 0 to 10. Uh, 0 is totally impatient. 10 is always patient. Well, it'd be interesting to see that mark sheet, wouldn't it? How we get on with that. Well, God has prepared in advance a way of living that we should live. Good works. I think that has part of it. But I also think God has particular things that he wants us to do with our lives. I know that the phrase, a life work, can be overused, and most of us haven't found it and probably never will. And so in one sense, you know, to use that, it just puts loads us with guilt that we haven't found our life's work. Um, our life's work, if we're Christians, is to grow more like the Lord Jesus. That is our life's work. That people on the day we die say at our funeral, he or she just so reminded me of the Lord Jesus. If we get anywhere near that as a tribute... Or if I do, that'll do me, fine. And yet God does have specific things. He is the God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And that means everything. And so as you consider your life and your future and what God would have you do with your life, your one life, I think it would be great to think of it in these terms. I was talking to someone at breakfast about this, that 
one of the reasons that I, and I'm not saying you have to go into paid Christian work, but one of the reasons that I gave up being a lawyer to, to go the way I've gone is, is that I thought, well, John, you've only got one life. And there's no point, you know, that I expect all of us have got several things we would like to do with life. You know, maybe you wanted to be a train driver when you were a kid or a nurse or something, but you're not that now, probably. Forgive me if you're a nurse. Um, you know, I wanted to be a pilot at, at one point, but I, I'm, I'm never going to fly a plane, I know that. Uh, be grateful. Um, but I felt that you had to look at it like this. You had to think, well... When you stand before the Lord for your fatherly assessment um, on the last day as a Christian, you want to be able to say, Lord, if you gave me my time again, I would do the same again. What are, what are the good works that you've prepared in advance for me to do? Well, grace and works, just a couple more minutes if we may. Um, how does faith fit in, verse 8? Because again, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about faith. Some people see it as a kind of spiritual currency. So that if you have enough of it from wherever, you know, I wish I had your faith, wish I had your bank account spiritually, um, then you can roll up at the counter of heaven. Try not to think of I'm a celebrity at this point. Uh, you can roll up at the counter of heaven and exchange it for salvation. Any of my good works? Now, faith is the empty hand of the beggar reaching out to receive the gift of food. We must beware, if we've grasped this, that we don't become the opposite of what it should imply and entail. In other words, proud Christians, that we've grasped grace. It's ridiculous, isn't it, to think of it in those terms. But sometimes people are so pleased they've grasped the concept of grace that they're really proud. And they look down on everyone else who hasn't grasped it. And their church really does preach grace. That church down the road, I'm not sure they do. So we are a superior church. You kind of think, hang on a minute. I thought the whole idea of grace was that everything you have is a gift. You've got nothing to boast about. So let's not boast that we have understood grace. Let's grasp the power of grace in our lives, but let's be humble as befits those who have understood grace. A humble confidence, complete humility. It's by grace that we've been saved. We've contributed absolutely nothing, and we never will. And yet with that complete humility, a complete confidence, it's by grace. We have been saved. Rescued from an unspeakably awful situation by his awesome intervention, his amazing grace. I've been a Christian for about 50 years. Can you imagine? When I turned to the Lord as a young boy, it was because of one night, it was a Sunday night, because my dad was a pastor and... My sister and I were home with mum, and we were reading. We were reading a book by Harriet Beecher Stowe called Uncle Tom's Cabin. I went back and read the book actually a few years ago, and I couldn't for the life of me work out why I reacted like this to the book. But what, what I do remember is not what I read in the book, but my reaction. I, it's a story about a slave who's a Christian in the southern states who's terribly treated. But somehow it triggered in my mind what I knew as a young boy 
about my own sinfulness and about Lord, the Lord Jesus dying for sinners. And I just became acutely aware that night of my own sinfulness. I mean, I realize now it was God's Holy Spirit convicting me of, of my sin. And I told my mother that I, I wanted to become a Christian. I wanted to give my life to the Lord. And she said to me, and as I look back, she's with the Lord now, but I, I think what a, what a wise mother I had. Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what I'd have been tempted to do as a father now? What I would be tempted to do if one of our children said, said that to me, I'd be tempted to say, let's get down on our knees right now by the bed. But what she said to me was this. She said, John, after I've gone out of the room, you kneel down beside your bed and you ask the Lord Jesus to forgive all your sins and to come into your life and take control. And I did that. And I'm told that some people noticed a marginal improvement in my behavior in the months that followed. But the longer you live, the more you sin, and the more wonderful salvation by the free gift of God's grace is. I can tell you. And I hope the answer to the question, have we grasped the power of grace in our lives, is yes but I want to grasp it more. Let's pray. So a moment just to reflect. Do we really believe our predicament was as bad as God tells us in his word? Spiritually dead? Enslaved? Damned? Father, thank you that those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are made alive in him, are raised up with him, are seated with him. Thank you for your amazing grace. To which we contribute zero. Even the faith we have is your gift that enables us to trust you and to turn to you. Thank you that you're a God who takes us, who saves us, and then who shows us what you want us to do with the rest of our lives. You have prepared in advance good works for us to do. So as we look to the coming days and to the rest of our lives, we can have complete and utter confidence that both in general terms, in the development of our Christian character, our Christ-likeness, 
and also in specific terms, what you want us to do with our lives, you will make it abundantly clear as we keep walking with you. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.